you remember all the things you did wrong. But this morning, <laughs> as we were worshiping, <clears throat> I just really felt the privilege and the honor. <laughs> seen somebody there. The privilege and the honor of, of, of being in church, of being a child of the King of Kings. And um, just coming here this morning and seeing some familiar faces and some unfamiliar faces, it doesn't matter because we are all connected because we love Jesus and he is our father. And how privileged are we for that? And, um, and I know that I'm a daughter and I know our father God is my father, but it kind of connects us more when we realize that we all together are part of his family. And so this morning, even though this is a special church to us, it's just so good to be here, be not only because I've been invited, in, but just because we are family. And yeah, just because of that. And may I introduce the best preacher in the world? <laughs> Edwin Strong. <laughs> Hi everybody. It's um, really, really. I'm not OCD. I just like it at that angle. Um, it's it's a really wonderful moment for Hazen not to be with you guys, Edwin and Candice. And um, I'm gonna just uh, get right into it because if I start been a little bit personal, I, I will start leaking, and I might not stop. So <clears throat> I first started preaching in the Methodist church when I was 19, and when you did a preach, you had to have an Old Testament scripture and a New Testament scripture, which is good. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 84. We're going to read a couple of verses from Psalm 84. And then your New Testament scripture for today is Ephesians 2, verse 21. It was nice back in the day when you had paper Bibles, because you could stick your finger in two places. Very good. And um, so, Psalm 84, and then Ephesians chapter 2, just one verse, verse 21. But before we read, let's pray. So in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, God spoke to Eli, and he said, I'm, I'm going to replace this line of priesthood with priests who will do according to what is in my heart and my mind. Do you know that the heart and the mind of God are different? You can find God's mind without finding his heart. And you can find God's heart without finding his mind. He says, I'm going to raise up a priesthood who will do both. He'll know what's in my heart. He'll know what's on my mind. For whatever reason you came here this morning, the Lord brought you here because he wants to show you more of his heart and more of his mind over this church generically, over you individually. You might belong to another church, but he brought you here this morning because he wants to show you his heart and, your, and his mind. So Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would increase in this place and in this moment that we would decrease. I thank you, Father, that you are able to take Five loaves and two fish, which is really just two food groups, and feed a multitude. I thank you, Father, that you're able to take the fragility and the frailness of our preaching and feed everybody uniquely and specifically. And I ask that you do that. I ask, Father, that your spirit would be so present and so real 
move so deeply and so powerfully and so specifically in every single heart here. Father, I ask please that even though I say one thing with my words, Father, I, I pray for the application that comes from your spirit. Father, I ask that this church will never be the same because of your word that is a deposit into it today. I pray, Father, that where there is calling, vision, dream, gifting, authority that is lying dormant, that you would awaken that this morning. Where there is a pastoral gift lying dormant, where there is a preaching gift lying dormant, where there is a gathering gift lying dormant, I ask that you would breathe on it today and bring it into being. In Jesus' name. For myself, Father, I just ask your forgiveness and your grace to bring your word. Amen. So let's read <clears throat> Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. What's the dwelling place of God? How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord God Almighty. For the guy who wrote the psalm, what was the dwelling place? The temple. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord God Almighty. My soul yearns even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord God Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Old Testament, the dwelling place was the temple, and the presence of God, which is everywhere, was somehow unique in the temple. And, and this, this psalm speaks of the beauty, the dwelling place of God. And there's this little verse that says, even the sparrow has found a place. She can have a nest and have her young. I want to come back to the sparrow. New Testament, in whom the whole structure, Ephesians 2 verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Do you know that you are a holy temple? In your togetherness and as an individual, you are a holy temple. And in, in him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place. Same word. Old Testament dwelling place. New Testament, dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In the Old Covenant, the dwelling place was a building. You went to it. The glory of God, the presence of God was there. The psalmist says, I love that place. In the New Testament, you are the dwelling place. The church is the dwelling place of God. It's the most beautiful thing, friends. Jesus is building his dwelling place, and God inhabits it by the Holy Spirit. I want to go back to the sparrows. Jesus spoke about sparrows. He said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, sparrows weren't worth very much. Seriously. Do you know that sparrows visit the dwelling place of God today? There are some sparrows that will live around here. Do you know that? What's a sparrow in the New Testament? It's a person that comes to the dwelling place of God and, feel like, and feels like, for whatever reason, they're not worth very much. 
The people that arrive at church week after week feel insignificant. One of the questions I ask myself over and over again with our church and the site that we're involved in is can the sparrows find a place? Can the sparrows find a place where they can build a nest? Can they feel at home here? And, and please don't take me wrong here, but sparrows arrive in many different forms to the dwelling place of God. And on the outside, they might seem like eagles, but in their souls, they feel like sparrows. I've seen sparrows arrive as single parents. I've seen sparrows arrive as guys who've been divorced. I've seen sparrows arrive broken in their sexuality. I've seen sparrows arrive confused with their gender. I've seen sparrows arrive, friends, week after week. I've seen sparrows arrive as women wishing they were married. I've seen sparrows arrive as people coming to wishing they weren't married. Seriously. And I ask myself this question of our church. In this dwelling place, can the sparrow find a place where it feels like home? Can you hold that thought? Got a long introduction. The book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation mention, I don't quite know what they're called, but these weird living creatures. Both Ezekiel and Revelation talk about these living creatures that have four faces. The face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle, and the face of an ox. Have you, have you read that before? It's weird. Okay. And... Most commentaries that I've read say that these living creatures represent the leadership, the ministry, the serving nature of the church. That, that the leadership or the, the serving of the church has this, these four faces. The face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of a man, the face of an eagle. And as I've visited churches over the years, I find that you go to some churches and they have one of the faces. Like you go to some churches and they have a prophetic face. They have the, they have the eagle face. It's the predominant culture. It's the predominant feel. You go to other churches and they roar. You go to other churches and... And they feel compassionate churches. You go to other churches and they, they just work hard. They have endless meetings. Not, not those kind of churches. You feel, like, you feel like an ox. And I visited a church just recently that, that of the four faces, the lion is definitely the predominant face. And so... The guy who leads it roars a lot. I'm serious. The language is authority, submission, accountability, all those kind of words. Do you know those raw words? And it's great, guys. Because what you observe with these faces in churches is that where there is one dominant face, the sparrows who identify with that face, can build a home. But the sparrows who don't identify with that face really struggle. Does that make sense? I have seen that where one face is dominant... The church is strong in that area, but where the other faces are absent, 
The church is incomplete. In fact, to be honest, it's defective. It's insufficient. So those are my two introductory thoughts. A question. Can the sparrow, the person that feels like their life is just two for a penny, can they find a place to build a home? Can they find a place where they can be productive and fruitful and belong and safe and loved and not shot with a pellet gun because they're pooping on the floor? And secondly, by way of introduction, these four faces. Are we attending to the face that we are not? Now, I'd like to look at those four faces from four New Testament pictures of the church. Because in the New Testament, the church is referred to as a family, as an army, as a body, and as a holy temple. And if you think of those four faces, they are well reflected in these biblical pictures of church. Church is a family. Church is an army. Church is a body. And church is a holy temple. This dwelling place. How lovely is your dwelling place? It's those four things. It's a family. An army a body, and a holy temple. And I'll never get through all four. This is a long series on it by itself. But I'll just go as far as I can in like half an hour. Let's contemplate the church as a family. In the late 1980s, there was a teacher and a writer by the name of Francis Schaeffer. Some of you might have read his books. He was a really great teacher. And he said this. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. He says the church needs to be right, but it also needs to be beautiful. Let me make that whole quote again. Biblical orthodoxy, in other words, we hold doctrine. And we hold truth. And this is what the Bible says. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. The church needs to be right and the church needs to be beautiful. How is the church right? We are right by the doctrine we hold. We are right by the doctrine we preach, by the doctrine we hold on to. That's what makes us right. But what makes us beautiful? We are made beautiful, friends, by our acts of kindness and care and love and concern. We are right by our boldness. We are beautiful by our humility. And the church needs to be both. Do you know that the word family is not used in the New Testament? If you look at it in the Greek word for family, it's not used in the New Testament. Nowhere is the church in the New Testament called a family. And then, Ed, how can you say that this is a biblical picture? For two reasons. Every page of the New Testament tells us that God is our Father. And every page of the New Testament, we call each other brother. The word brother, so wherever you see in the Bible the word family or the word brethren, it's just simply this word brother. Sorry to, for you ladies, I think it's inclusive. Okay? The implication. But every time you see the word brother, it's the word adelphos in Greek. And that word adelphos means this, joined in the womb. Isn't that beautiful? Delphos, it's the word womb. The word a in front implies joined. Every page of the Bible, the New Testament, 
refers to us as those who are joined in or at the womb. And every page of the New Testament refers to God as a father. In fact, this, this word family in describing the church is by far the most used picture of New Testament church. We are a family. You know that in the Old Testament, God was known by his name, not his role. He's known by the name of Jehovah. Some people pronounce it differently. That word Jehovah in the Old Testament is used over six and a half thousand times. Do you know that in the entire Old Testament, God is referred to as Father 13 times? In the entire Old Testament. He is known by this name that is holy, it's revered, it's feared. In fact, you can't even mention it. But as Father, just 13 times. And then you come to the New Testament and how Jesus brings in, it's not that there's a new God, there's a new revelation of the same God. And the overwhelming, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, the overwhelming revelation of God in the New Testament is that God is Father. And it begins in John chapter 1, to all who received him, talking about Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave power to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor a human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The disciples say, teach us how to pray. When you pray, pray like this, not Jehovah, not Adonai, pray like this, our Father. See, you and I have grown up with that prayer, it's not radical to us. But for a first century believer to be able to call God our Father was radical. John chapter 14, show us the Father, Philip says, and that is enough. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When Jesus rises from, from the tomb and Mary Magdalene, he meets Mary Magdalene in the garden. Jesus says these profound words. Go to my brothers. How radical is that, friends? Go to my brothers and tell them I have ascended to my father and their father. Go to my brothers. This is the creator of the world speaking to us. You're my brother. And tell them that I have ascended to my father. I get that part. And to their father. The overwhelming picture of church in the New Testament is that we are a family. We are brothers and sisters joined at the womb. And God is our father. And the more we understand that, friends, the more beautiful church becomes. I was thinking like, Lord, if we were to begin a series on your church as a family, we'd preach forever. What are some of the things about family, friends? Family feels. Feels deeply. Family has a pulse. Have you thought about that? Have you ever, have you ever been to a group of believers? Have you ever been to a church and you felt... I can't find the pulse. I don't know how else to describe it. Maybe I'm just emotionally wired, but that language makes sense to me. I can't feel the pulse here. We're doing all the right stuff. Going through all the motions. I can't feel the pulse. Friends, family feels. We feel as parents the successes of our kids. We feel their joys. We feel it when they make good decisions. We feel it when they make bad ones. We feel an ache when our family is broken. We feel an ache I've watched the pain that parents feel when their children decide that they're lesbian or homosexual. 
watched it over and over again. I'm not having a go at anything, by the way. I'm just telling you that family feels. We are not immune to this. There's one saying that believers make that always kind of gets me. Is when people say, you know, I've been hurt by the church. And it gets me for two reasons. Number one is that they're surprised by that. Like, the church hurt me, and I'm surprised. And the second thing that gets me about it is, the church hurt me, and therefore I have an excuse not to belong to the church. Guys, my family has hurt me. My parents have hurt me. My grandmother hurt me. I'm still part of my family. My boss has hurt me. I work for the church. My boss has hurt me. Still got church. The worst 12 years of my life, and I only did 12, by the way, was school. I hated school with every part of me. I went to Mary's Brothers in Nanda. It was terrible. People want to go to St. David's. No, I wouldn't go to St. David's if you paid me. Honestly, it was terrible. Those brothers were horrid. But I still did it. I did it for 12 years. I think I was caned on my first day by Mrs. Kempster, who, by the way, was my, my father's headmistress. How can you have the same headmistress for two generations? Tells you something about that school. Mrs. Kempster. My class one teacher was Mrs. Scarfsma. I visited that school after I'd been married like for 20 years, and she was still terrorizing grade one kids. <laughs> Put your hands out like this. Beat you over the knuckles with a ruler back in the day. I still did 12 years. But let the family of church hurt us. We've given up on it. Friends, family feels. See, something else family does. It's family serves. You might think, really? If you don't think family serves, you haven't had kids yet. <laughs> Every time you change a nappy, what are you doing? It's disgusting. <laughs> Serving. So I want to say this, friends. Family serves from the place of love. John chapter 13, Last Supper. It says the time of the festival of the Passover was at hand. And Jesus, knowing that the time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father, having loved those who were his own, he now showed them the full extent of his love. What did he do? He washed their feet. Do you know that for every other slave, washing feet was an act of service. But for Jesus, washing feet was an act of love. Same thing. Same feet, same dirt, same water, same towel. But for one person, I hate doing this. It's my job. For Jesus, I love doing this. Act of love. Same act. Same act, friends. But for one person, this is an act of love. For another person, this is an act of the lowest form of servitude. And I can't wait to stop doing it. And we see within the church, friends, how one person or two people can do the same thing. But for one, it's an act of service. And for another person, the same thing is an act of love. Quite remarkable, isn't it? For Jesus, for our Lord Jesus Christ, the washing of feet was an act of love. You know, in the book of Revelation, there's seven letters written to seven churches. The first one is written to church in Ephesus. And this is what is said of the church at Ephesus. I know your deeds, 
your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Let's just stop for a moment there. Talking about a church. And I spoke about flavors and faces of churches. This is the church that, imagine going to the church at Ephesus. Where they persevere, where they work hard, where they suffer hardship. What do you think would happen in the parking lot of the church at Ephesus? Hey, they'd have good car guards. They would, your car would never get broken into when you visit Ephesus. What would the foyer be like? The church at Ephesus. The cappuccino, the, well, the cappuccino machine would always work even during load shedding. They would have backup generators. They would have inverters. And they would offer you not just milk, friends. There would be almond milk, soya milk, pouring cream. I'm telling you. Fresh, fresh cream. When you walked into the church at Ephesus, the guys would know exactly how to greet you. You wouldn't feel like it was a gauntlet and some granny's going to kiss you on the lips. And you wouldn't also feel like, I have to tell you this story, guys. There's a lady in our church back at home. And um, I'm not too sure how old she is, but she is in a proper old age home. I wanted to tell you what her name is just in case you ever come. But please come stand your love. This is how she greets me every Sunday. And I'm not like phobic with, you can't, you can't over hug me. I'm pretty fine with that. Yeah. So this is how she greets me. So I'll be her and hearts can be me. Telling you. And like the first time I was like, oh. <laughs> I don't even know I'm one telling you the story. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Anyway. Church at Ephesus, nobody would feel your bottom. <laughs> and, and like the worship would be, when you go to Ephesus, the worship is flawless. I don't know what the words these days are for like good worship, but it flows, whatever it is. Seamless, I think, is the end word for a good service these days. Seamless service. Do you know what you talk about when you, were, when you were in the car on the way home? You talk about what was missing. What was missing? He says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you have persevered Endured hardship for my name, not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have lost, what have you lost? You've lost your first love. Church needs to be right, but also needs to be beautiful. You know the wonderful thing about, I see I might probably only get to one point. <laughs> you think about right and beautiful. When our Heavenly Father wanted His church to be a dwelling place in which the sparrow can build a nest, He didn't give us a list of do's and don'ts. He gave us someone to follow, our Lord Jesus. And you think about from John chapter 1, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. It wasn't teaching to listen to. It was teaching to look at. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Beautiful and right. For the law was given through Moses. What happened with Moses? Just got the doctrine part right. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and and truth came through Christ. And from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Do you know the hardest thing for me as a leader in the church is to hold grace and truth? Give me one or the other. Let me just be a truth person or let me just be a grace person. 
Somebody asked me the other day, Ed, how do you cope in, the 20, in 2023 with all this gender, with all this LGBTQ? How do you cope in the 21st century when believers think it's okay to live together before they're married? How do you cope in, the, in 2023 when, when Christian parents are telling their children, just live together before you get married to make sure this is a good thing? Somebody asked me the other day, how do you deal with that? You know what my answer was? My heart breaks. My heart just breaks. Because I can be just truth. And I can be just grace. But I have to hold both. And the only way I hold both is, I, I said, I don't know how else to tell you. My heart just breaks. Because I watch, anyway. Family gathers. Friends, family gathers. We gather when there's trauma. We have a family in our church at the moment. The guy does uh, races motocross. He's lying third in South Africa, just for those of you that like motocross. <clears throat> anyway, he fell last week, and he's in ICU right now in Cape Town. The family are all over South Africa. They live all over South Africa. Where do you think they are right now? All in Cape Town. Why? Because the family gathers. The family gathers around trauma. The family gathers around celebration. The family gathers. The family gathers around the Sunday lunch table. The family gathers Certainly my family gathers to go to church together. That's what families do, friends. They gather. And we put aside some of the things that, well, I'd actually prefer to be riding my motorbike right now, but it's Sunday lunch. And I can, it's not that Sunday lunch is more important than riding my motorbike, but I can ride my motorbike later. We can't move Sunday lunch to later. I honestly think, friends, and this might sound very simple to you, and, and, but I think that the gathering of the family, this dwelling place of God, is something that the devil is contending for in the 21st century. The church gathering. Friends, we gather. is what we do as a family. A gathering people. I want to just touch some of the other points. and I don't know what I was doing for time. So um, please go home and contemplate this. Please, friends. Please go home and contemplate God our Father and you and I joined at the womb and what that means and what it needs to look like. Go home and contemplate. The church needs to be right and the church needs to be beautiful. Second thing I'd like to talk about is the army. Because they're probably the two most contrasting pictures. Body, I think we understand. And holy temple, I think we understand. But when it comes to the church's family and the church's army, it almost seems contradictory. We're all familiar with Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities of powers, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So it goes on. We're familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are powerful to the pulling down of strongholds. Friends, if we think we are only a family and we are not at war, we are stupid. The church is at war. There is a war going on. If we think that as, as the church, we are just going to present truth, we are just going to present the Bible, and everybody's going to love us for it, we are very, very confused. There is a spiritual war taking place, friends. But I, think there's, I think there's a balance we need to get here. 
We are a family doing army things. We are not an army doing family things. Let me say it again. We are a family doing army things. We are not an army doing family things. The overwhelming presentation and picture of the church is family that fights together. Not an army that lives together. See, the church needs to be military in its mission. Please hear this, friends. We need to be military in our mission, but not military in our manner. Let me say that again. We need to be military in our mission. There is a world that, that needs the gospel. There is a world that needs truth. And though we are military in our mission, friends, we mustn't be military in our manner. See, when you talk about army, you don't use the word members. You use the word numbers. An army never counts its members. It counts its numbers. A family never counts its numbers. It counts its members. Watch the how our language. I watch how our language. When the words of the church are numbers instead of members, when the words of the church are accountability and submission and authority, we're actually military in our manner, not just military. In our mission. And we become those who roar. Does that make sense, friends? So we have to hold these two pictures of the church. A people on a mission. A desperate mission. But we do it as a family. What's your language, friends? We're a body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What's that mean? There's this little word that's used in 1 Corinthians 12. It's the word needed. The word needed. Why have you got a pancreas? You need one. Why have you got a heart? You need one. Why have you got a brain? You wonder. You need one. There's not one person, there's not one person that God has added to his body that's not needed. Not one. And in fact, when we get to heaven one day, we're going to get a surprise as to which was more needed. Do you know that there's no shortage of guys putting up their hand to preach? But try and get somebody to work in your kids' ministry. Then you realize who's more needed. Quite sobering, isn't it? Body speaks of need. I want to say this to you, dear friends. You are needed. The body that you are part of, you are needed. And you're needed because you have a function. And when you are absent, see, I'm always amazed at this. We're happy to make a difference when we're there, but we don't want to have to not make a difference when we're not there. If you are willing to make a difference when you are there, like, hey, guys, I'm here. I can lead today. Then you need to know that the corresponding responsibility is that when you're not there, there's a gap. So I don't, want to, I don't want to be held responsible for the gap. I just, want to be held, I just want to be responsible to make a difference. You can't be one or the other. Last picture. Picture of the holy temple. Most beautiful picture. What does was was the temple speak of? The presence of God. Do you know that according to the scripture, as I understand it, there are two virtues that distinguish the church from all other people on the planet. Love 
in the presence of God. Love in the presence of God. John chapter 13, by this, all men will know that you follow me because you have love. Distinguishing factor, distinguishing virtue of the church is love. Exodus chapter 34, God says to Moses, I will go with you. Moses, Lord, if you do not go with us, do not send us up from here. For what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the earth if you do not go with us? Two distinguishing virtues of the people of God is the love of God and the presence of God. Can you stand, please? <clears throat> the Lord Jesus is building this church. He's not just building this church, but he's building this one. And for those of you that are members here, you're not numbers, you're members. You are the family of God. You are the army of God. You are his body. You are his holy temple. And I want, to, I want to pray over you as individuals because you fit into that somewhere. You fit into that somewhere, friends. You might feel like an insignificant sparrow. Seriously, you might feel like an insignificant sparrow. But there is a place in this church to have a home, to build a future, to bear fruit. Do it. Do it. I pray over this church, Father, that it would reflect these four faces. I thank you, Father, where this church is strong. And I thank you, Father, where this church still needs to grow. I thank you for every single individual person here this morning. And I don't know, Father, how you apply this message, but I pray that you would. Friends, the Lord brought you here this morning so that you would know you are a member. You are a member with a God-given gift to function. A God-given gift to function. And friends, can I say this? Whatever you think your function is, it's more. So man, you came here this morning, but whatever you think your function is, it's more. See, if we put each other in, we put each other in pigeonholes. Oh, that's so-and-so, he does that. Oh, that's so-and-so, he does that. Oh, that's so-and-so, she's with the kids. Oh, that's Jermaine, he leads worship. It's more, bro. It's more. The function is more. It's wider. It's deeper. It's more far-reaching. Come and do it, Lord. I don't know how to land this. Huh? I just pray, Father, that your spirit... not too old, friends, to be super fruitful. You're not too young. Father, I just call out in every single person here this God deposit. The God deposit. Where there is a God deposit of preaching, I call it out today, Father. Where there is a God deposit of leading worship, I call it out today. Where there is a God deposit to make a difference in business, I call it out today, Lord. Where there is a God deposit here this morning to lead a connect group or a life group or a small group, I call it out, Father, in Jesus' name. Where there is a God deposit here this morning, Father, to care and to love and to nurture and to disciple, I call it out, Father, in Jesus' name. Where there is a deposit in worship, I call it out. Father, where there is a deposit for the gifts of your spirit to prophesy and speak in tongues, I call it out, Father, in Jesus' name.
Even the sparrow has found a place to build a nest and have her young. Go have your young, friends. Go build your nests. In Jesus' name. Thanks, Ed and Hides. Don't you love how deep God's truth is? We've probably read those verses so many times, and uh, so good to get this application. Ed used an interesting word as he prayed. He said, deposit. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, God, the good deposit. In other words, God's deposited stuff in all of us, and Paul says, guard it, look after it, take care of it, make sure you work it. Gold is also deposited in the earth. Sometimes you have to mine it out and, and work it a bit before it shines. But I want to invite you, in line with what Ed's preached, if, if your heart has been stirred because there's a deposit that's not yet active or mined or at use or you, you feel like a sparrow, whatever the, the terminology is, please invite you. Get hold of, come and chat to me after the meeting. Get hold of one of our elders and just say, hey, I've got a deposit that needs mining. Can you help me? We will, we'd love, to, it's our greatest joy to find what people are called to do and help them run in that calling. Amen? So please do that. Thank you, Ed and Hides. Join us for some fellowship, some tea and coffee. If you are a visitor, you have a free cappuccino, please go and uh, redeem that voucher. It will be in your book. Um, in 12 15 minutes time, 14 minutes time, we're going to meet back here for a leaders meeting, uh, leaders, potential leaders, and if you'd like to join us, you're welcome to join as well. Uh, yes, leave it there. Have a great morning, enjoy your Sunday and the warm weather, and be blessed.